Take your Bible, if you will, and open it to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 16, where we return to our study of this marvelous book. And we've been studying the fifth message of 14. There are 14 that go all the way through chapter 29 on the condemnation of Judah that Jeremiah was instructed to give to the people. And this fifth message is one of punishment, specifically God's resolve, or better stated, God's determination to punish the people of Judah for their wickedness. And I thought it might be helpful to begin this message by addressing the topic of punishment and discipline. Punishment and discipline. God uses hardship and affliction as a means of discipline. As a father corrects his children, so does our Heavenly Father correct his own. In fact, if you read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 through 11, you read the following. Now, if you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he does what? Disciplines. And he flogs every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we have earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our benefit, so that we may share his holiness. And all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. But to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So there is a punitive element in the discipline described by the writer of Hebrews there in Hebrews chapter 12. There is no doubt God disciplines his children in love and for their good. That's just the nature of our God. God is love. But there is a punishment involved in discipline. Notice the words going back to Hebrews 12, 6. He flogs every son whom he receives. This is from the Legacy Standard Bible. That comes from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. If you have the ESV, some of you do. Randy, where are you? All right. The one member in joint heirs who still has the ESV chastises every son whom he receives. And for the most of us who have the NAS, he scourges every son whom he receives. It might surprise you, but the Greek term means to beat with a whip or lash. It's a rather strong term. To flog, scourge as a punishment. It is a painful form of beating that was common in Jewish practice. Thus, in this Hebrew text, it, it is to punish with discipline in mind. And perhaps it's hard for us to think that God punishes his children. But that is what we read in Hebrews 12. The words used in this passage imply parental punishment 
colored by disapproval, mixed with sternness and a degree of severity. If you recall, in Deuteronomy 9.20, Yahweh was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. In Deuteronomy 9.20, as with a people for worshiping a golden calf. In 1 Kings 11.9, we read, Now Yahweh was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Both Aaron and Solomon were redeemed men, but God was angered because of their sins. New Testament, our Lord Jesus was indignant with the disciples for refusing to allow children to come to him in Mark 10, verse 14. There is simply no way around the fact that there is a punitive component in God's discipline. Even if you look at the Davidic covenant in Psalm 89, 30 through 33, beginning with verse 29, actually, so I will set up his seed to endure forever and his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they profane my statutes and do not keep my commandments, if they do this, verse 32, Psalm 89, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with striking. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. It is the strongest evidence of his love when he disciplines his own. So it's no surprise that as we study chapter 16 of Jeremiah, God's punishment is addressed, but not without reminding the reader of his promises, especially Jeremiah. And so it will be both sobering and uplifting to see the prophet navigate through punishment and promises, God's punishment and God's promises. And I believe you will too. May God renew our love and commitment to him and to him alone. So in verses 1 through 9 of Jeremiah, now going back to Jeremiah 16, Jeremiah 16, verses 1 through 9, you have God's punishment illustrated. In verses 10 through 18, you have God's punishment explained. But we're so grateful in verses 19 through 21, we have God's promises that are adored, adored. God's punishment illustrated his punishment explained, his promises adored. Let's look at the verse, the first element here, God's punishment illustrated in verses 1 through 9. God's punishment is illustrated in two astonishing ways. Here Jeremiah is forbidden to marry, verses 1 through 4. Not only that, but he's forbidden to mourn or feast. In verses 5 through 9, this all comes from Yahweh himself. Notice what we read in verse 1. Now the word of Yahweh also came to me, saying, all along Jeremiah is given direct testimony. He's giving direct testimony to what he has received from Yahweh. That's what a preacher does. He receives from the Lord, and he tells the people what he has received from the Lord. Straight from his word. What follows may be a surprise to you concerning the prophet Jeremiah, but here we're noted that he is forbidden 
to marry. Look at verse 2. You shall not take a wife for yourself, nor have sons or daughters in this place. Stop right there. He was not to marry. I mean, this is painful. The prophet Hosea, if you recall, was commanded to marry, Hosea 1-2. And it was normal for any adult Hebrew male to take a wife for himself. Marriages back then were even arranged, and celibacy was rare. In fact, there was not even a Hebrew word in the Old Testament for bachelor. To be commanded not to take a wife would have been a difficult providence, to say the least. You see, marriage is a grace of life, 1 Peter 3.7. It's the most precious of human relationships. Married couples know the blessing. They know the companionship and the fulfillment marriage brings. And what's more, marriage brings little blessings. <laughs> Scripture tells us children are an inheritance of Yahweh, Psalm 127, verse 3. Back then, having children would allow for the inherited land in the family to be passed down to the very next generation, not only for the sake of the land, but for the sake of the family name. Boaz, if you recall, used this reasoning when trying to convince the close relative of Naomi in Ruth 4.5. You must also acquire Ruth, the Moabites the widow of the one who had died, in order to raise up the name of the one who had died on behalf of his inheritance. So let the family name be carried to the very next generation, that they may arise and recount them to their children, that they should set their confidence in God, not forget the deeds of God, but observe his commandments. Psalm 78, verses 6 and 7. You see, having children is about transmitting our faith in the one true God, that they should set their confidence in no one else but Yahweh alone. Before I get preaching on another message, the prophet Jeremiah was commanded not to marry and thus not know the blessing of children, not know the grace and joy in marriage let alone the family name to be carried on to the next generation. Jeremiah was already accustomed to hardship and heartaches in ministry, like any shepherd. He writes back in uh, chapter 15, look back at chapter 15, verse 10, Woe to me, my mother, that you have borne me as a man of strife and a man of contention to all the land. I have not lent, nor have men lent money to me, yet everyone curses me. Look down at verse 17. I did not sit in the circle of merrymakers, nor did I exult. Because of your hand upon me, I sat alone. You filled me with indignation. Everyone curses me. I am alone. This was simply no time for marriage. This was no time for children. Why not? Well, look what follows. Going back to chapter 16, verse 3 and 4. For thus says Yahweh concerning the sons and daughters born in this place, and concerning their mothers who bore them and their fathers who beget them in this, in this land, they will die of deadly diseases. They will not 
be lamented or buried. They will be as dung on the surface of the ground and come to an end by sword and famine. And their carcasses will become food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth. This was a time for punishment. The prohibition to Mary was to teach the people that death was coming, whether by deadly diseases, by sword or famine, it was coming. And Yahweh was resolved for that punishment to come. This was spoken earlier, actually, in chapter 15, verse 2. And it will be when they say to you, where should we go? Then you are to tell them, thus Yahweh says, those destined for death to death, those destined for the sword to the sword, and those destined for famine to famine, and those destined for captivity to captivity. Death would be so pervasive that people would become callous to death. To the living, it would be one less to feed. To the living, death would be more welcome than to continue in a living death. Leaving the dead bodies unburied would be regarded as a great shame and disgrace, as it would to this day. But yet we're given a second prohibition given to the faithful messenger, to Jeremiah. Not only is he forbidden to marry, but he is forbidden to mourn or feast, verses 5 through 9. Look at verse 5. For thus says Yahweh, do not enter the house of the funeral meal, or go to lament or to console them. For I have withdrawn my peace from this people, declares Yahweh, my loving kindness and compassion. Here Jeremiah is denied the privilege of being a shepherd to a herding people to be there for the people who have experienced the death of a loved one. Listen, my beloved, it is one of the most powerful moments to show love, care, and compassion when you are beside the people who mourn the death of their loved one. It's a powerful moment. They will never forget your presence. They will never forget your call. They will never forget that card you sent them. That's why this is a dreadful judgment. For God to retract, for God to take away, withdraw his peace, his loving kindness and compassion, this is indeed severe. Remove God and what you have is just mere men, mere men. And even they will not be there to offer sympathy Look down at verse 6 and 7. Both great men and small will die in this land. They will not be buried. They will not be lamented. Nor will anyone gash himself or shave his head for them. Men will not break bread in mourning for them to comfort anyone for the dead, nor give them a cup of comforting to drink for anyone's father or mother. These were acts associated with the mourners and their family and friends. After the burial, friends of the mourners would prepare a meal for them. That would be the cup of mourning, a cup of comforting. In verse 5, a funeral meal. You might recall that Ezekiel, the prophet, did not marry, did marry, he did marry, but when his wife died, he was not allowed to mourn. 
He was instructed by Yahweh, groan silently. Make no mourning for the dead, Ezekiel 24, 17. Furthermore, Ezekiel was told, do not eat the bread of men. Jeremiah was not only forbidden to shepherd the people through times of sorrow and death, but if there was any rejoicing, if there was any gladness taking place in a home, in a family, he was not allowed to join them as well. I'm telling you, the greatest privilege of any shepherd is to come alongside the people through their highs and through their lows to experience the full gamut of life and to be by their side at every turn and every stage of life. It's a wonderful privilege. But look down at verse 8 and 9. Moreover, you shall not go into a house of feasting to sit with them to eat and drink. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I'm going to cause to cease from this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of rejoicing and the voice of gladness the voice of the groom and the voice of the bride jeremiah was to see this in his lifetime and this would be a great trial to see if the prophet would trust yahweh enough through the ensuing judgment that would come upon the people would he walk in obedience But why, oh, why? Why? And here we're given what most of us do not have the privilege of knowing, where God explains the reason for the hard providence, why Jeremiah was to shoulder the burden and the hardships associated with his calling. God's punishment illustrated, and now his punishment explained. Look at verse 10. Now, when you tell the, this people all these words, the expectation was there that he would, they will say to you, for what reason has Yahweh declared all this great calamity against us? What is our iniquity? What is our sin which we have committed against Yahweh our God? As a reader, this is a great question though it does allow us to see how self-righteous and blind the people had become when you read this. Calvin even went a step further and called it madness not to examine themselves. You see, your conscience either condemns you or comforts you. Here it shows how much the people had locked up their conscience to not even know. They are unaware of the magnitude of their sin. Yahweh answers in verse 11. Then you are to say to them, it is because your fathers have what? Forsaken me, declares Yahweh, and have walked after other gods and served them and worshiped them. But me, they have, again, forsaken and have not kept my law. The word in Hebrew to forsake is azab, and it speaks of departing, leaving, or abandoning. Back in Jeremiah 1, verse 16, Jeremiah 
writes this, I will speak my judgments on them concerning all their evil, whereby they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. This is not new. And again, in chapter 2, verse 19, your own evil will chastise you and your acts of faithlessness will reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake Yahweh your God. And the dread of me is not in you, declares Lord Yahweh of hosts. Judah's sin and her apostasies have brought troubles upon her. They had no one to blame but themselves. They had withdrawn themselves from worshiping the one true God. And do you know what apostasy brings you? We have it in this verse, in chapter 2, verse 19. It is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. What does apostasy leave you with? Evil and bitterness. Proverbs 14, 14 describes it this way. The backslider in heart will have his fill of his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied with his. Backslider is describing the heart, faithless, perverse, disloyal, rebellious. The basic meaning, to deviate or diverge. That is the backslider in heart. This is what the sinful heart does. It deviates. It is rebellious. But it wasn't just their fathers who committed this treacherous sin of apostasy. Go back to Jeremiah 16, verse 12. Not only is it their father, their fathers who have done this, but look at verse 12. You too have done evil, not only that, but even more than your fathers. For behold, you are each one walking according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart without listening to me. That's the evil heart. Stubborn. So stubborn. And God now declares that he would be the vindicator of his own glory. Because of what we read in verse 13. What is God's response? So I will hurl you out of this land into the land which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, and there you will serve other gods day and night, for I will grant you no favor. No favor. There in a land which they have not known, they will have their fill of idols, and they will serve them to their heart's content. Day and night. Day and night. This is God abandoning them to their own plight. This is a nation so bent on plummeting to the lowest of lows. And God not only acts as a perfect caballero, which translated into English, what is that? Gentlemen, thank you very much. Gracias. Bien hecho. Well done. God not only acts as a perfect gentleman, allowing them to go their way, but here he forcefully hurling them out of the land. That's Romans 1 all over again. How heartbroken Jeremiah must have felt at this point. 
we're talking about a total deportation of God's people. I mean, what would have come easily to mind are the days of slavery in Egypt. And thus, this was a dreadful punishment to come. Yet in the midst of this dreadful and sobering message, Yahweh comforts the prophet Jeremiah. God always brings comfort at the right time, does he not? Verse 14, Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when it will no longer be said, as Yahweh lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as Yahweh lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he banished them. For I will return them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. Notice that I will return them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. As their stay in Egypt came to a close, so would their days in the north and from all the lands where God had hurled his people. Yahweh again would have compassion on his people and in his own time, he would restore them to the land. If you go back to Jeremiah, actually Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, I want you to see this, chapter 3 of Jeremiah, 15 through 18. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will shepherd you on knowledge and understanding. It shall be in those days when you are multiplied and fruitful in the land, declares Yahweh. They will no longer say the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, and it will not come upon their heart, nor will they remember it, nor will they miss it, nor will it be made again. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of Yahweh, and all the nations will be gathered to it. To Jerusalem for the name of Yahweh, nor will they walk any more after the stubbornness of their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel, and they will come together from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. This is a time yet in the future when, one, shepherds will come to teach them the truth, two, his own presence on the throne in Jerusalem, not just the Ark of his covenant, three, there's allegiance even of Gentile nations, four, this is associated with righteousness, five, there's genuineness in worship taking place, six, there's unity of Israel and Judah, the north and the south, together into one kingdom, and lastly, a reestablishment in their own promised land. Going back to Jeremiah 16, but before that, there must be punishment. There must be punishment. Look at verse 16. Behold, I'm going to send for many fishermen, declares Yahweh, and they will fish for them. And afterwards, I will send them for many hunters, and they will hunt them from every mountain and every hill and from the crevices of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Stop right there. What we see here is God's omniscience at work. God knows it all. Nowhere does Scripture even hint that anything could be unknown to God. 
God knows everything. Just consider these portions of Scripture that testify of God's omniscience. Second Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of Yahweh move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support whose heart is wholly devoted to him. Hebrews 4.13, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. Even the most minor and insignificant details are known to God. Matthew 10.30, But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Even those. Even talking to people that do not have as much as others do. Okay, But he knows every minor and insignificant detail. He knows it all. Even the very hairs on your head. I'm not looking at anyone, so no one (laughs) is offended. Back in Jeremiah 11.20, we read that even the most deeply concealed things are known to God. O Yahweh of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the insides and the heart. And here in Jeremiah 16.17, my eyes are all on their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. All is known to Yahweh, including our sin. Psalm 69, verse 5. O God, it is you who knows my folly, and all my guilt is not hidden from you. They're hidden from us at times. Psalm 19, they may be hidden from us. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 19 prays, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. They may be hidden to you, but they're not hidden to God at all. Psalm 19, verse 12. All is known to God. And so the Lord continues to describe the thoroughness of the depopulation. The punishment will be proportionate to the offense. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 16. Now look at verse 18. I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have profaned my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and with their abominations. For about 800 years, Judah had been allowed to stay in the land. Though God did bring about war, he did bring about famine and epidemics and other plagues to discipline his own. Yet here he says there is a time that's coming that he would doubly repay his people for their iniquity. So what is left for a prophet to do at this point? What is the best thing that you and I can do when faced with trouble and the dark state of things? Well, allow me to read the lyrics of a well-known praise written back in 1922. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look fully in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely what? Dim in the light of his glory and grace.
Well, Jeremiah was born well before 1922. And he did not come to know the Savior and King, the Lord Jesus, in his ministry, earthly ministry here on earth. But Jeremiah did turn his eyes and all his thoughts to Yahweh in the midst of such pain and heartache of coming punishment. Well, how do we know that? Because his promises are adored in verses 19 and following. O Yahweh, my strength and my strong defense and my refuge in the day of distress. To you the nations will come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, futility and things of no profit. Here Jeremiah praises Yahweh. and Yahweh will answer. He will have the last word here in our chapter. But here Jeremiah praises Yahweh. Jeremiah calls Yahweh his strength, his strong defense. And then he adds, my refuge in a day of distress. His confidence, you see, is not in the circumstances. His confidence is not in people. His confidence is not even in himself. His confidence is in Yahweh alone. This echoes what David writes in Psalm 37, verse 39 and 40. But the salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh. He is their strength in time of distress. Yahweh helps them and protects them. He protects them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. This does not mean that we escape the time of distress. Rather, it reminds all of us here and now that the righteous, that in Yahweh do we find our strength. The time of distress drives the righteous to their strong helper who rejoices to be their refuge. This is what times of distress can do. It drives us to our God, do they not? To seek him, to call upon him for his strength, not our own. for his protection, for him to be our refuge. What you see here is the Lord is sustaining Jeremiah. And that is such an encouragement to the pilgrim who sees nothing but dark days of distress all around. But there's more praise offered to the Lord. Look at verse 19 again. To you the nations will come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, futility, and things of no profit. Jeremiah here turns to what will be fulfilled after God's punishment of his people. The nations will come and adore the one true God. This promise I read to you, Back in chapter 3, verse 17, at that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of Yahweh and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem. And part of it was fulfilled when the Jews did come back from Babylon and idolatry was renounced and many Gentiles did turn to God. But, but there is a future day coming 
the future fulfillment lies in the final restoration of Israel in the millennial kingdom. Isaiah writes of this in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. It will be that in the last days, the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains and will be lifted up above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us from his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion the law will go forth, and from the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. God will one day open the eyes of many peoples, and they will see the folly of idolatry. They will realize that all of this that they have inherited was nothing but lies. And that truth is wrapped up in God and God alone, in the one true God, Yahweh. Going back to Jeremiah, they will ask themselves what we read in verse 20. Can man make gods for himself, yet they are not gods? As if to say, how could we be so senseless to think that idols that we have made with our hands are gods, when in fact they are not? They are not gods. So Jeremiah not only praises the Lord for who he is, he is the source of our strength, the one whom we seek our help from, the one who becomes our refuge in the day of distress, but he also praises Yahweh for what he has promised. This is not the end, you see. Punishment is not the end. Because in the scattering of his people, he will bring the nations. He will bring the nations. Yahweh answers Jeremiah in verse 21. He will have the last word. Therefore, behold, I'm going to make them know. This time I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is Yahweh. Here Yahweh speaks and he promises, I'm going to make them know. So much attention was given to the mighty hand of God in bringing the people out of Egypt, and rightfully so. But there is more to be seen in God's power and might. It would be seen in the punishment of his people. He would show then his power, his might in their ruin. It will show them what they had refused to believe and live all along. Yahweh is his name. God would indeed humble his people. God would bring punishment to cause them to know him, to know both his power and might, that he alone is Yahweh. Earlier in Jeremiah, we read in chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, a verse that you are familiar with. Thus says Yahweh, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands, and he, what? Knows me. 
that I am Yahweh who shows loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares Yahweh. You see, my beloved, life is about knowing Yahweh. Life is about knowing his might and his power. And God is determined to cause his people to know him. Nothing can thwart his will. As Yahweh, he is ever-present. He does not change. He alone is the Redeemer. He alone is the Eternal One. He alone is the Life-Giver. He alone is the Supreme Judge of all creation. And even in his judgment, God has a plan. Father knows best. He always has a plan. My beloved believers, never need to fear facing God's wrath, but they will face God's fatherly disapproval and correction when they sin. Judah had forsaken the Lord, not only repeatedly, but for so long. And so God's punishment must come. Yet in God's kindness, God would make his name known among the nations. Jesus reminded his disciples in John chapter 10, verses 14 through 16, the following. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Then in verse 16, and I have other sheep, which are not from this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Praise be to God that he has other sheep that he must bring. And one day we will become one flock with the one shepherd, the one true shepherd. Till that day comes, we must be faithful messengers as Jeremiah was in his day. And whatever hard providences God has ordained, let me say that again, whatever hard providences God has ordained, let that sink for a moment. Whatever God has ordained that we go through, my beloved, we must be faithful to our calling to be his witnesses, not only of his coming judgment, but of the glorious promises he has given to us, his people. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do give thanks because of this wonderful message of your punishment and your promises. Thank you that you interweave your truth that both is sobering and comforting to us. You have a plan for all of this. You have ordained our steps and the days that we will live and the times that we will live in. Thank you that we live for such a time as this. Cause us to be faithful. Prepare us. For it is in Christ's name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.